You're listening to episode 124 of the Tennis Files podcast. How to break through mental barriers and reach your potential with Mirabon. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. Welcome to the Tennis Files Podcast, bringing you advice from the top minds in tennis to help you improve your game. And now, here's your host, Mirban Iranshad. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Tennis Files Podcast. My name is Mirban Iranshad, a former Division I college tennis player. And on the show, I interview the world's top tennis pros, coaches, and experts to help you improve your tennis game. And before we get into the episode summary before the meat of the podcast, uh, I just want to connect with you and uh, ask you how you're doing. And I'm hoping that you're playing a lot of tennis these days lately. I know even though it's cold in the majority of the U.S., unless you're the lucky peeps that live in California or Florida, I actually am not going to be able to play tennis for a few weeks. I had to undergo a, a bit of sh- uh, shoulder surgery. Actually, nothing minor, thankfully, but I have uh, a well, had a big fat deposit in my shoulder that I finally figured I should let go of or get it um, excised or, yeah, taken out. Uh, it's called lipoma, but, you know, no biggie, but I kind of felt like, uh, one, it was growing, and two, uh, my right arm, which I used to serve, was feeling a little too big or heavy, so it was time, but in order to not have it uh, scar and whatnot and make sure it fully recovers, I have to take a couple weeks off, so we'll see how we're doing in about two weeks for a checkup, and I actually had that surgery done today and got uh, some anesthesia put in me, and I was pretty groggy, but uh, I committed to recording this podcast today, and I'm doing it. And of course, I did sleep quite a bit uh, and took some time off, so that helped a lot. But I'm really excited to bring you this episode today, and what I'm doing for this episode is um, bringing some of the best mental game experts onto the podcast, and I've actually had all of these experts on before, and what I did was scour through uh, six uh, episodes and find the sections that really honed in on some really key information regarding the mental game. And I mean, this is huge. You know, I think it all starts with all of us for the mental game. It's, uh, it's, it's something where a lot of times we have limitations. We, I hear it all the time, like, oh, I'll never be able to have XYZ in my game, or I'll never be able to reach this level, or I'm too old. And, you know, it's really unfortunate because these are all very limiting beliefs that you have in your mind, and, and it's really uh, limiting you, to use the same word, from being able to reach your true potential. You have to really approach things with an open mind, and that's the only way you're going to be able to break barriers. And I like to, uh, to, you know, first off, listen to the experts on this topic and also find other people who are very inspirational who have really done amazing things, uh, like I've mentioned him several times with David Goggins, a non 
tennis player, but he did so many amazing things when you'd think that he would amount to nothing. And um, so anyway, uh, you know, all this to say, I think you're going to really enjoy the content in this episode. And it's a fairly long one um, with six different clips. But I really hope you learn a lot from it. Maybe have a pen and paper down or jot out jot down a few notes on your computer. You never know which one of these pieces of advice uh, will help you. And that's why I love listening to podcasts myself. And uh, hopefully this will provide provide a lot of value to you. So without further ado, uh, actually, the first, uh, I should introduce him first. So the first guest for today is Dr. Peter Scales. And Peter has done a lot of great things in the world of tennis and psychology. He's been in the uh, psychology field for over 45 years, and he recently published an excellent book called Mental and Emotional Training for Tennis, Compete, Learn, Honor, and he received his doctorate in, in Child and Family Studies from Syracuse University. He is a USPTA certified tennis teaching pro. Uh, he's internationally recognized as one of the world's foremost authorities on positive youth development, and he's conducted countless research studies in many, many countries. He's also a great tennis player as well, uh, very accomplished, and has been quoted in hundreds of media outlets, uh, you know, all the different magazines and newspapers that you'd probably know of. So uh, I really hope that you enjoy this clip, and without further ado, here is... Dr. Peter Scales. Why did you decide to focus your career on the mental and emotional side of tennis? Well, you know, this is a, a late development. Uh, I, I came to tennis um, at 42, and I had I had played judo in, in high school. I had played basketball. I was always into sports, but uh, I didn't really start picking up tennis until my wife taught me uh, at the age of 42, and I just fell in love with it. And what I discovered, which was uh, both interesting and embarrassing, to me as a psychologist was that even at the age of 42, I had to go through the developmental stages of being immature about my tennis game and and growing into more maturity about it. I was angry at myself. Um, I would throw a racket. I just was beside myself if things didn't go well in the tennis game. And of course, they didn't because I was a learner, a beginning player. And it, it shocked me in a way that someone at a mature age of life could have to go through these same stages that most players go through when they take up the game in childhood. Um, so it was fascinating to me that, um, that my mental and emotional responses to the game would often dictate what I did physically. And of course, it affected the game. It affected the enjoyment of the game. It affected the people I played with. Um, so I had to, you know, shape up or ship out. And uh, from both a personal and a professional standpoint, that was a really interesting introduction to the game. The mental and emotional was right in my face right from the beginning. Yeah, Peter, that's very interesting. And it is really actually fascinating that, uh, I mean, I imagine that probably in other aspects of your life, like you are pretty calm if, if something happens, uh, you know, negative outcome, I suppose. So, I mean, is this pretty much universal that if... If, if you uh, experience a new sport or something that you're you're always going to go through these stages 
or it, do, will some people be able to naturally kind of handle it calmly or, or how does that work? Well, I, I, I think there is a, a range, you know, of, uh, of responses. Uh, people are, are different and, and not everybody reacts the same way, but human beings are, are competitive animals. I think one of the folks in the tennis summit this year said that um, uh, we're, we're competitive animals just by nature and and psychologically uh, there are there are three core kind of um, needs that human beings have uh, and tennis really collides with with those needs in a, in a very strong way and makes it um, it makes it challenging uh, one is and we call these the ABCs of self-determination theory for people who are interested in looking further uh, into it um, ABCs. A is autonomy. Uh, to what extent do you have some control over a situation, some influence, or are things out of control? Uh, B, belonging. Uh, do people care about you? Do you care about people? Are you liked? Are you loved? Those kinds of things. And C is competence, uh, which speaks for itself. So the reactions that people have to mistakes, to failure in a lot of things and just about anything, and tennis included, uh, always uh, circle around one or more of those three needs. Are they afraid of things getting out of control? Are they afraid people won't like them because of what they're doing? Or are they afraid people will think they're incompetent because of, of how they're acting or behaving in that situation? Um, so all sorts of anger, fear uh, get driven back to one or more of those three things. And because we're competitive animals um, in tennis, uh, particularly in, in singles, when you're just out there on your own against uh, an opponent, um, it, it, it matters. Uh, we, we care about this. It, it, people sometimes um, have an easier time dealing with the reactions emotionally and mentally uh, if they don't really care as much. But if you care, if it matters to you, then uh, it's going to be a challenge at some point for you to come to terms with how are you going to deal with the reality that you're never going to be perfect at this game. You're always going to make mistakes. You're always going to have experiences of losing. So how are you going to do that, deal with that, and maintain the fun and enjoyment in a game, which is what you were attracted to in the first place, and which is part of why you care so much about it. So that's the challenge, I think, for all of us, regardless of what our, you know, basic genetic constitution is and our predisposition to, to be calm or high strung, uh, we all at some level are dealing with those psychological needs and the challenge to those needs that, that a tennis match um, sets up for us. Yeah, that is really fascinating, Peter. And uh, I can see tennis easily affecting uh, the A, B, and Cs. I mean, you, you talk about uh, being able to... Uh, have a sense of belonging like maybe if, if you if you're not able to compete at the level you want and you feel like you, like you're not playing well on the court then you feel like you don't belong and uh, having the control over your game a lot of times we feel like we don't have that sort of control and the competency that we want and so that that's really right. really fascinating stuff there uh, and I wanted to back up a little bit too Peter to kind of get a sense of um, you know how how you got your start playing tennis and then also maybe talk about your uh, competitive career as well, because I know that you you also uh, play tournaments and such. Yeah, uh, well, I did until uh, injuries got the, the best of me. Um, but that's that's part of what I enjoy about coaching.
coaching is I still have my hand in it and I'm still out on the court. Um, but, it, you know, I just I, I, I felt like uh, I fell in love with it. it. It for me and as it is for you, I'm sure. And the other people who are uh, people who are listening to your podcast, they're passionate about tennis. They have fallen in love with it. And uh, it, it's it's a relationship just just like a relationship with, with a person in that in that sense. It, it, it did something. It responded to something um, in my soul. Uh, and I just grinned and grinned. And, you know, when I first started playing, uh, my wife saw me on the other side, my wife Martha on the other side of the net, and I'm grinning like crazy. And at first she didn't know if I was squinting into the sun or maybe, you know, just kind of teasing if I made a good shot and I was grinning, you know, kind of, you know, hey, I'm so good. I was just having a lot of fun. I, I just loved being out there and uh, the the pace, the, the dynamism of it, you know, it's an open skill sport. Um, judo, basketball, the other sports I was attracted to um, in my youth, um, very dynamic. They're not closed skills, they're open skills. You constantly got to be adjusting and adapting. You know, you're, you're, you're improvising like, like playing jazz. Uh, you have a structure, you have a plan, but you're improvising and that that plan has to go out the window sometimes and you go to plan b c d and then whatever you have to do to get the ball over the net one more time and all of that the challenge of all of that the physicality the mental um the the physics and the geometry of 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 the court uh and the ball and the racket it just all appealed to me in one big package so uh, it just made me happy i had fun with it i love to hear that passion for the game and the happiness yeah. that it brings you and yeah i mean there's just so many facets as you mentioned to master that it's really you're not going to be bored with it i mean you know there's the technical emotional mental physical everything and um as far as um how we are uh, focusing on the mental and emotional side for on junior players like wh what do you think is the biggest problem with that because i mean clearly your, your book mental and emotional training for tennis has a focus on on the the junior side and i was wondering how well you think we're currently doing and coaching in that area well you know it's it, the the real challenge is the is the the culture of winning you know the emphasis on on w's and l's that is the biggest challenge and it's the biggest threat to the inherent enjoyment to the fun you know that kids have when they first get exposed when adults have when they first get exposed to to tennis you know the the, the dynamism of it so the the the, the challenge it, it, it's this kind of a Zen um, issue. Uh, I, I played judo, as I mentioned, in, in high school, and I, I was good at it. Um, and it, it forced me to learn that the, the central component of doing well at judo was not to fight the strength of your opponent, but to use the strength against them by inviting it. Um, so you, you don't focus on beating the opponent. Even though you want to win, you don't focus on beating the opponent. And in a, in a similar kind of um, seemingly contradictory way, the, the best way that juniors can increase their chance of winning, and, and adult players too, is to not focus on winning, is to focus on all of the process, uh, all of the, um, the, the, the physical movements that you're making, your breathing, the plan you have, the, the, what is happening right 
now in this moment, focusing on being grateful to be out there. All of these things that keep you away from yourself and your desire to feed your ego by winning. And and that is a really difficult uh, thing to do. And that's what I spend most of my mental and emotional coaching doing is trying to uh, trying to work on that understanding and get it get players to really um, to really incorporate this and integrate it into into true understanding, not just lip service. That the more they focus on and worry about and think about and talk about winning and losing, the less likely they are to play their best. Yeah, I, I I can't agree more with that. I mean, I bring this story up sometimes on podcasts, but uh, in my very first year of playing college tennis, I I played my very first match in uh, at Cornell University in a tournament there, and uh, I I I was up six two five one I think, and then I immediately thought about thought about how cool it would be to win my very first match, mm-hmm. and, and uh, of course, you know, everyone knows the end of the story. I lost, and then my coach sat me down and said, "You need to focus." on the process, not the results. And I think it's really important, like you said, to really focus on your whole development and, and focus on improving every single day. And and uh, you have a, a wonderful chapter uh, entitled Learn, where you, you go into that further. And we'll, we'll touch uh, upon that a bit more too throughout the interview. But um, I also want to ask you, I mean, right off the bat with, with your book, you mentioned the importance of honor and respecting your opponents. And why why is why should honor be the foundation of every tennis player. Well, the you you, you can't learn uh, everything you have to learn if you're not humble. If if you're not approaching uh, the task with uh, humility and curiosity and respect for what your opponent can teach you, what every um, every person you come in contact with who's played the game can teach you, um, you you just cannot develop. And if you cannot learn. The, to the fullest of your potential, then you can't compete to the fullest of your potential, which is why, although the, the subtitle of the book is written, Compete, Learn, Honor, um, I emphasize them in coaching uh, in the reverse order, honor, learn, compete. Uh, it, it, it all starts with, with understanding um, that the, the key part of honor is, is, is to appreciate that the game is bigger than you are. That that's all you know. A a, the, a first step in in what I said earlier about trying to get your ego out of it, trying to not take these things personally, which is what makes you throw a racket. Uh, you took it personally, and 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 part of the way to begin constructing a different attitude about it and a different emotional apparatus um, toward the game is to really come to believe genuinely that the game is more important than you are. The, you know, Michael Jordan wrote his book for the love of the game. And, and, and in my book, I, I quote Boris Becker, you know, uh, whose, whose quote is, is emblazoned above well, one of the courts in, in Wimbledon at Wimbledon. And, and it's basically um, that he, he, he loves to win. He can take the losing, but most of all, he loves to play win or lose. He, he loves to play. And, and that is, that is the key. The game, loving the game more than how you perform at it is, 
is the key that's going to unlock the ability to be calmer when things go wrong, which means you're going to be more able to see the options that you have and the adjustments that you can make when things go wrong in a match. Or in the case of your story there, um, make you more able to see what you have to continue doing when you're obviously having success, 6151. You're not going to change that winning game. And you're going to focus on the the point you're playing right now, the shot you're making right now. And and a, a good deal of this extends then to your opponent and how you think about your opponent and what you wish from your opponent. If you start wishing for your opponent to double fault, you're not honoring the game. And now you're placing your desire to win at whatever cost above the game being more important. The mentally stronger approach is to wish for your opponent to hit a really fabulous serve so that you've got to hit a really fabulous return so it that it brings out the very best in you. That's what you should be wishing for, the challenge. All right, great stuff from Dr. Peter Scales. If you're interested in listening to this full interview, the episode number is 106. And uh, a lot of great takeaways here. A couple of them that I really like repeating to myself and I'd like to repeat to you is that you're always going to make mistakes and lose. I mean, I see a lot of players out there who are perfectionists in the sense that if they miss one shot, they're throwing a racket. I mean, I saw this even the other day. We were just playing like a practice uh, doubles match on Friday and there was this gentlemen actually very nice but well actually both of uh both of the opponents we played they you know even though they were they had won the or won the first set against us and then uh they were down in the second by just a a little bit they you know they threw their racket and and really like screamed out loud and things like that and yelled and um i think the key to remember is that you know we're not machines it's going to be impossible for us to, to always make perfect shots, and some days we're going to have harder days than others. And I think instead of putting that energy towards frustration and, and negative uh, emotions and actions, we have to put that energy back into our brains and try to think, you know, okay, we're not playing great now. Uh, what can we do strategically or in some other fashion to help us get get out of this tough situation and win? And uh, that that's a, a great uh, takeaway there from the interview with Dr. Peter Scales. And also uh, a, a cool one that you don't hear much is that it's really important to honor and appreciate that the game is bigger than you. That is tennis, of course. And you just want to take your ego out of the game. You don't want to take anything personally. Uh, things are going to happen. And, I mean, like I mentioned, you just have to keep figuring out ways to improve and, and to, to really be laser focused on on uh, on your game. Uh, of course, you know, figuring out how to dismantle the opponent's game, but laser focused on the process and, and what you need to do to, to be your best out there. And it's not easy. You know, I mean, I like doing things like meditating because that really teaches you how to how to not fight with certain uh, negative thoughts and, and not to you know, have an ego and to think uh, more clearly out there and to realize a lot of different things that can help you in life. So, um, but anyways, I I really do hope that you enjoyed that clip uh, with Dr. Peter Scales. And 
The next clip that I want to introduce to you is an interview with Jeff Salzenstein. And as many of you might know, Jeff has actually, uh, he's still teaching, uh, you know, excellent instruction on technique and strategy and so forth. But he has actually taken a much deeper dive into the mental aspects of tennis. Uh, Jeff was a former top 100 uh, player in the world. And he's accomplished a lot. He, you know, he took a, a set off Michael Chang, I, I think, at the U.S. Open, and uh, he's been on the podcast a couple times and my my tennis summits as well, uh, which are every single year in the spring. And uh, I think you'll also really enjoy Jeff talk about his experiences and his thoughts on on the mental game and what you need to do to really maximize your potential. Uh, I really enjoyed this. I think during the interview, I said something to the effect of, you know, that I was just uh, really excited to go out there and, and apply the lessons that he was teaching on that podcast. So without further ado, here is a clip from my interview with Jeff Salzenstein. I believe, you know, mindset uh, mindset performance, uh, getting what you want out of your life. Like you can go make $10 million, but if you don't have character integrity and you don't know how to handle stress, then certainly you haven't been able to, uh, teach yourself or, or, or teach yourself the, the mental skills, the mindset skills to handle all of that. And you're going to crash, you know, Lance Armstrong, the guy crashed because he didn't do things by the book. Tiger Woods, the guy crashed because he didn't do things by the book. The character was in question. So I really link up leadership. You know, we've been talking about mindset performance, but I link up mindset performance to leadership and character and constantly trying to check yourself to see how you're doing in those areas. Because again, you can make a hundred million dollars, but you're going to feel empty inside if you don't have the ability to handle stress, if you don't have the ability to uh, deal with high stress environments. If you've got if you've got character issues, uh, integrity issues, that's going to bite you in the butt. So, um, and those are some things that I learned from Jim over the years. And you know, just to continue to, like, I've seen how he's evolved, and I'm I'm wanting to evolve what I've done over the years. And watching him and having him be a trailblazer has been very inspirational to me. Love it, Jeff. And there's a lot of stuff there that we can unpack. But you mentioned that you've always been very driven. And I know there's quite a few people who it just seems like they're kind of floating around with no true passion. So I mean, where did your drive come from? Was was it just that you found something that you loved and, and that drove you? Or like, were you inherently always a driven person? Or like, how did that come about? So I'll start with the end in mind again. And, and one of my big principles is starting with the finish. Okay. Start with the finish in mind. We've talked on another podcast about the forehand and how you focus on your follow through first, assuming you're holding the grip correctly, but you focus on your follow through first, because if you have the good end picture of how it's supposed to feel and how it's supposed to go, then you have a better chance of making a good stroke. And so starting with the finish, it's the same thing what we're talking about with writing your story. Start with the finish of like where you want this to end up with your tennis or with your business, what you want to create and write that story. And then you can reverse engineer it and go backwards. And so the reason I, I bring that up is because I believe in, you know, I'm an entrepreneur. Entrepreneurship 
and, and I've heard this from someone else, so I'm, I'm stealing it, stealing it from someone else. But the concept that entrepreneurship is the ultimate personal development experience, because you are going to bump up against different barriers on your journey unless you keep developing yourself. And I would I could argue it's the same thing with tennis. You will you will bump up against a level in tennis that will force you to develop yourself at a higher level. Otherwise, you will not continue to evolve. You not continue to move up the ranks. So for me, I had mindset around, you know, grew up in Colorado, never thought I was going to play pro tennis, wasn't groomed to be a pro tennis player. I think that created a belief system that I was the little kid from Denver that couldn't beat the big boys when it counted on the big stage. So that was a belief system that developed at a young age that was entrenched, you know, in my mind on a, on a you know, again, more of a subconscious level. And so getting back to your original question of where the drive came from, my parents marry, they, they get married. Uh, my dad's a tennis coach. I start playing tennis. I'm pretty good at it. Uh, my parents split up. And I believe, and again, you know, maybe I'm sitting on the couch right now uh, with my therapy session, but I believe that when my parents split, I made a choice. I could have maybe chosen to, to eventually start drinking or use drugs when I was older and, and use that way to get attention or to numb any type of pain. But my attention, uh, I got my attention by being uber successful in tennis. So I was going to show the world or I was going to get love for the world by being amazing at tennis. And that was a unconscious choice that I made. And I'm glad I made it because I love tennis. I was good at tennis early and it's given me so many life lessons where I've had to keep trying to develop myself on this pathway as a tennis player, then as a coach and as an entrepreneur, and now stepping into my role, uh, working with executive leaders and executive teams on their inner game, uh, with all of my life and tennis experiences. So, uh, I believe at a young age, we start to form uh, our beliefs and how we're going to show up in the world, if we're going to be driven or not. And the good news, though, is you once you start learning this, you have a choice in any moment to make a different choice. So just because things have happened in the past, if you've had a traumatic event happen, God forbid you've been abused or you had a really tough upbringing, you can always make different choices in every moment. One of my mentors... <laughs> tells me, and I have a lot of mentors, by the way, and that's one reason why I feel like I can keep growing and evolving because I have people that I'm learning from that growth mindset. But the question she will ask, uh, and she got this from her mentor, it's been passed down, um, is that, you know, what can I do in the next 10 seconds? Well, I actually, I've tweaked it. So she says, what can you do in the next 10 seconds? I've actually taken it neck to the next level and say, what would ask this question? what would a high performer do in the next 10 seconds and just sit there? And the answer, it's, it's usually not like, okay, I smoke a joint right now, or let me go drink a lot of alcohol and get drunk. A high performer, if you ask yourself that question, you're being honest with yourself, what would you do? And there's so many options, a high performer. So in this case, Maribon, ask yourself that question. You get off this podcast tonight. What would a high performer do in the next minute or the next 10 seconds? If you were that guy, a lot of things. I mean, I would start changing the way I communicate to myself. I would consider adding some more coaches uh, and mentors to my. Uh, but let's say, let's say, in the next ten seconds or a minute, mm -hmm. when you get off, like when you get off the podcast, what actual action could you take? Maybe it's like 
maybe you compliment your girlfriend mm-hmm. or you go make some healthy food. Like for you, what, what, what would be like one thing if you said, okay, tonight when I get off this podcast, I'm a high performer. This is what I'm going to do. This is pretty specific, but I'm going to record the intro and outro to this and, and edit the podcast right now so that I, you know, I'm doing something uh, in advance and I'm prepared to publish the next episode, uh, you know, uh, early. 100% because the, the, uh, someone that's not a high performer would probably go, you know what, I'm going to go grab a beer and I'm going to go sit on the TV and numb out and watch some TV. But literally, if you keep walking around and asking that question, what would I, what would a high performer do in this moment? And you truly want to be a high performer and you call yourself out on it, you're going to start making better choices in that moment. And then it just becomes like a, like every day becomes a, like every, it's every 10 minutes. Like what could I do in the next 10 minutes? that moves me in the direction of being a high performer or that embodies being a high performer. And that's, it's a really, I think it's a great exercise instead of like making, making a to-do list instead of being so structured, which by the way, structure is amazing. And I, and we can talk about structure where I think it can blend with creativity, but sometimes I think it's fun just to say, what do I feel like doing right now? That's actually like going to give me life instead of like suck the life out of me. Wow. I mean, this is just incredible stuff, Jeff. I mean, <laughs> you clearly have been learning a lot uh, throughout the years. And yeah, I mean, I love this. This is such a powerful question. I mean, I guess the, the double part of um, just saying, telling yourself, I am a high performer, and then asking yourself, what would a high performer do can really change your life and uh, make you way more productive. So I mean, this is just incredible stuff right here. Hey, Marabon, let me, let me add one more thing sure, there, sure. just real quick. So if you notice, I asked the question, what would a high performer do? Or you could ask a question like, what else is possible? What word did I start that question with? Uh, what? What? So start asking what questions and not why questions, because the people that are victims. So there's two types of people in the world and we're all, we're a blend of, we're a blend of these two types. Some people, and you probably know some of these people, Maribon, Mm -hmm. some people are on one spectrum and some are the others, a continuum, Mm -hmm. but there's creators and there are victims. That's it. There's creators and there are victims. So if you're a victim, you're going to say, why does this always happen to me? Why is it so cold today? Why did my boss not give me a raise? Why did the wind blow that way and I couldn't hit my serve today? Those are victims, okay? So if you are, if you are guilty of that, good news is you can change it. Start asking what questions. What can I do to get better right now? What can I do to be a high performer? What would a high performer do? What else is possible in this moment? What can I create? So if you start coming from that framework of asking yourself the question, am I being a creator or a victim? Your whole world can totally change. Wow. Wow. This is, uh, I, I'm loving this right now. I'm actually kind of getting goosebumps at, you know, <laughs> and, and I'm very excited to, to take some action here. So it's, it's really incredible. You got me fired up right now. I'm like, I'm not like a Tony Robbins type, but I'm like ready to jump through a jump, run on a, like a fire, the fire pit, pit right now. Yeah, me too, man. Uh, it just, I'm loving <laughs> it. So I really do appreciate uh, all of this. And I'm just curious, uh, I know obviously we've been talking for a while and, and you have a very busy uh, plate, but uh, I was curious to ask you, uh, what coaches do you have? I think you mentioned some of them, but I'm just curious to see what areas of your life uh, do you have coaches mm. in and mentors? Yeah. So I don't have a coach right now that I work with weekly, you know, like every week I get on a call, but I have, so I have the one mentor, Craig Valentine that the Instagram, I went to a one day workshop that he taught and I've known him for 10 years. And then I also went to his two day 
retreat where there were like 300 people there. So, and I watch him on Instagram every day. So I, I call him a coach because I've paid him a significant amount of money for that workshop and, uh, you know, have learned a lot from him, but he's not like, you know, I talk to him every week or anything. I have another coach, uh, that I work with twice a month, about twice a month. We do both a combination. We do like a healing session. She does body work uh, on me, but we also talk a lot about mind, like this mindset and, and, um, her approach to it. And so I learn a lot from her. So I got her and then um, I'm actually just uh, engaging a, a fitness coach, actually, um, because believe it or not, that's one area of my life where I kind of poo-poo it and I don't, I don't have structure around um, because, you know, I, I had so much structure playing tennis my whole life. And then when I stopped and started coaching and entrepreneuring, I was like, hey, I'm still six foot one, 175 pounds. I'm, I, I eat really well. Uh, I'm not gaining any weight. I'm not drinking beer. I, I don't really need to work out a ton. Um, but I, I'm now working out more and more. There was, there was a stretch where I wouldn't work out, which is, I realize is incongruent with someone who wants to be a, a, a true performance coach on, on multiple levels. So I'm calling myself on out on that, but I'm engaging, uh, with her, uh, to, to have her help me with some structure. And then let's see, what other coaches do I have? I'm leaving. Oh yeah. So I've probably spent at least in the last eight years, I bet I've spent, uh, oh, at least at least a quarter of a million, maybe $300,000 just on mentorship, coaching, and masterminds. So I just hired a business coach to help me transition into corporate because she's a master at winning corporate clients and working with executive teams and leaders. And I want to take all this content that I have pouring out of me to share and impact these leaders that can make a difference in companies and make a difference in the world. And so I hired her and I just paid her a lot of money. So um, I have multiple coaches and I lean on friends as well for, for mentors. And you know what? I don't spend time. So another guy that I look up to, his name is Bedros Kulian. He talks about crabs and uh, not, not those types of crabs, but <laughs> the, cr- the crabs that uh, like, you know, the people in your life that are basically crabs, they're, 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 they're crabby. And, you know, I don't hang out with crabs, period. So I would rather... If, if I'm in a, in a room and someone's crabby or a crab, I don't hang out with them. I just walk out of the room or I walk away. And so I'd much rather spend time with myself than be with a group of people or one person that's crabby or a victim. So I just don't do it. I'm not around that energy. I isolate myself. And that goes for family too. That's one of the toughest things is when you have family uh, where they might not be the most inspirational people in the world. Notice my word choices there. I just went with that concept, most inspirational people. Then you, you, you don't have to hang out with certain family members. You can have the boundaries. You can create clear boundaries. You don't have to get in fight with them. You don't have to tell them they're bad people. You don't have to tell them you don't want to talk to them or see them anymore. You can just quietly exit stage left or stage right. And they're good. They're not gonna. They're not gonna work as long as you don't make a big deal out of it. And and that's that's interesting to navigate that with friends and family. But there are ways to do it elegantly, without creating friction and without creating confrontation. Uh, so uh, Bedros also talks about um, you're either a fighter jet or a crop duster. This is kind of getting back to the creator and the victim. Mm-hmm. So I don't know about you, but I want to be a fighter jet. I don't want to be a crop crop duster. I want to be. Um, I want to be, uh, running a high octane, really high level. 
And so those are great analogies when you can think about like what type of person uh, do you want to be? Do you want to emulate a fire jet or a crop duster? And don't hang out with the crabs. Got it. Great stuff, Jeff. Great stuff once again. Just real quick, I just want to touch on goal setting and just ask you kind of your your uh, your approach to goal setting and uh, any tips you might have for us on that. Sure. So with goal setting, obviously writing it down, you can write it down anywhere that you want. I, I tend to write my goals down on a laptop. <laughs> I've got journals everywhere and I send t- tend, send to not know where things are in my different journals. So uh, writing it down on a laptop or on your phone is great. But what's interesting, and, and this is something that maybe I could achieve even bigger things in my life if I read my goals more often. For me, I feel like if like I have one friend that has actually created goals of like, okay, I'm going to have a billion dollar company. And to me, I think it's important to have a result goal. Like I want to be top 10 in the state, or I want to be a 4.5 in tennis, or I want to have a $10 million business. I think that's great if that resonates with you. But the, the challenge that I see when people set those goals, it then, then their actions on a daily basis are not aligned with that goal. So for me, I'm probably more on the side of taking massive action on a daily basis, moving in the direction towards, uh, towards a goal. But one thing I'm actually questioning, I'll be totally honest, is I don't have it totally dialed in. Like I'm going to you know, have a $2 million business with 20 people in my company, 20 employees, blah, 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 whatever that is. And the reason I The reason I hesitate to do that is I feel like life has twists and turns and you've got to adjust along the way. And so if you set that goal and you're just fixed at that goal, it might confine you to other possibilities that show up. I mean, I've already drastically changed course this year with I I was creating something earlier this year in this personal development space. And now I'm doing something completely different. And it was all because I was willing to change paths and not stick to something that didn't feel like it was going to work. And so I think having that goal, but being willing to evaluate it every month, every 90 days and adjust it as you go is really, really important. Yeah, that's great advice right there. And just to be flexible, of course, I mean, if you have some other opportunity that's that's much better, you don't want to just say, nope, I, I wrote this down and I'm going to do it. But yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Appreciate that. Also, just uh, I guess real quick, I was curious, do you have a morning routine, Jeff? And if you do, could you go through that? Yes. So I, again, I'm left-handed. I have resisted structure a lot of my life. I'm an entrepreneur and Craig Ballantyne, who, like I mentioned earlier, is one of my mentors. He He's called by his friends and by his clients, uh, the most disciplined man in the world. He wakes up at 3.57 a.m. every single day, regardless of what time zone he's in. And he travels around the world. He structures everything down to literally like 15 minute, 30 minute increments. He has it totally dialed in. Now, that works for him. And he has inspired me in many ways to get more structured. A lot of what he's taken, I believe, is, is from the Navy SEALs. You know, structure actually creates freedom. That's the paradox. And at the same time, uh, I create structure and then I like to have wiggle room. And again, maybe that's an out for me. Maybe I could create more structure in my life, but I'm, hesitate, I'm, I'm hesitant to create so much structure that it limits my flexibility and creativity. And so this gets back to the morning routine. 
I played around with a lot of different morning kind of concepts. And, uh, to be honest, it, it does, it does shift for me right now where I'm at is that when I wake up, I, I want to exercise right away. Uh, I've tried meditation first. Um, but I find that it's more important for me to get moving and get sweating and get something active going than it is to, to sit first. So I prefer to move right away. And then when I'm done moving, then I can come back to my place and I can meditate. I can read my story that I write. And I try to write my story every 30 days. So I, I rewrite it every 30 days. I'm not always perfect with that, like to a T, but I do have the story. That's my intention. And, you know, if you, let's say you, you set it for 15 minutes, but you got a business meeting and you're a little bit behind the eight ball. Okay, fine. Five minutes, maybe even two minutes of silence. Um, I have these little uh, beads. I'll do a quick, my quick affirmation. I'll say like, I'm more than enough. I'm more than enough, say it like 50 times. I do some breath work as well. Do some quick, like deep breathing. And so the importance of all of this is finding what works for you and finding a structure that works for you. Everybody's going to be a little bit different. Craig Valentine's 3.57 in the the morning and he has it every single day. It's like a rote, like totally locked in. For me, it's a little more malleable. But here's the thing. If you don't get all of your morning routine in, let's say, for example, there are days when I only get the exercise in and I don't meditate. I get a kick out of people that like they meditate, but then they go through their day and they're like really negative or they're not aware of their words. Well, what if you're super aware of your communication and how you show up in the world and maybe even smiling as you go throughout your day? To me, I think that routine, that skill set is as important, if not more important than meditating for 10 minutes or doing your affirmations. You do your affirmations in the morning for five minutes and then you go out in the day and you're negative, like it kind of offsets everything. So I, I believe that getting movement in in the morning, stillness, quiet, prayer, reflection, uh, formations, breath work, and, and healthy food are really, really important things to integrate. And if that's super overwhelming, just start with one of those things. Start with something that resonates with you. And then if you're not able to do it, here's the big key. The thing that throws people off is the judgment, the beating themselves up if they don't finish something or if they don't have enough time. And, um, you know, like today, for example, I woke up and I felt like there was too much clutter in my place. And I had actually planned to go work out right away, but I saw the clutter and I was like, you know what? I'm going to clean this. And so I, I deviated from my plan, but it actually felt good to me. So like, you know, the most disciplined man might've said, Hey, you know, you should have done your workout. But for me, it felt right. And I actually felt good about it. And then I went and I, I worked out afterwards. So having that flexibility within that structure is, is what works for me. And so I try to work with people, uh, finding what's going to work for them. And then one last thing that I want to mention, this is something that I got from Craig and it's, it's been around for a while, but he's just got his own spin on is actually planning all this out the night before. So this is something that I haven't always been amazing at, but I'm committing to, I've been committing to, I'm committing to now is the night before planning out my calendar for the next day, planning out my schedule, my morning routine. And you'll find that if you write these things down in the calendar, you get it scheduled you will do it. You will do it much more often than if you just wake up Monday morning and hope that you do it, especially if you want to change habits, right? If you want to change your program. 
Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. A lot of great stuff from Jeff Salzenstein on that interview. And if you want to check out the full podcast interview, that is episode 74. Uh, just a side note for all these episodes, you can just simply type in tennisfiles.com slash and then the number of the episode. So, for example, Jeff's would be tennisfiles.com slash 74. And uh, one really great question that is fantastic, and I think you should ask yourself uh, as as many times as you, you can remember it, unless maybe you're on vacation. I mean, even then, try it out. But on this interview, Jeff mentioned, and he asked me to ask myself, what would a high performer do in the next 10 seconds? Ask yourself that question. Uh, for me, it was, uh, if you heard the interview, it, he asked me what I was going to do in the next 10 seconds, uh, after we recorded the podcast and I responded that a high performer would record the intro and outro of the podcast right away. And uh, this is something that I used to not do. I used to actually just sit on it. You know, once I recorded the interview, I waited, you know, several days or whatnot and then recorded it at the very end. And, you know, why not just do it all in one fell swoop and uh, be more efficient, you know? And so that's something that you can apply in your life. You know, the next time you're faced with a decision on whether to go out and hang out with friends, which nothing wrong with that. But, you know, say you have a decision between that and a decision between uh, a training session and, you know, knowing that your goal is to become an excellent player or to perform your best at an upcoming tournament or something to that effect. Ask yourself the question, what would a high performer do in the next 10 seconds and do it? And obviously, I think you know the answer there. Um, So unless you're a high performer drinker, (laughs) which that's no good. So anyway, um, great stuff from Jeff. Highly encourage you to check out episode 74. And the next episode that I have for you is with another Jeff. But this one is Jeff Greenwald. And I interviewed him, well, several times, actually, once again on my tennis summits. But this particular um, interview clip is from episode 46 of the podcast. And Jeff is one of the most um, foremost uh, known experts in the field of uh, mental game performance for tennis players. Um, He is an internationally recognized sports psychology consultant and licensed therapist. Uh, he's a speaker uh, and an author of many books, including The Best Tennis of Your Life. Uh, also a former, a former ranked pro on the ATP Tour as well, uh, top 800, I believe. And he keeps playing. Uh, he's still consistently ranked super high uh, in his age divisions. Uh, he's got a master's degree in clinical psychology with a specialization in sports uh, psychology. Uh, He was a consultant for the USC High Performance Coaches Program from 2005 to 15. The list goes on. But um, clearly, uh, Jeff is a fantastic expert in the field of the mental game, especially for tennis players. And that's why I brought him on. 
And uh, so I think you'll enjoy this clip. And without further ado, here is a clip of my interview with Jeff Greenwald. You can't just kind of turn this on like at a whim. You need to develop your mental uh, abilities to uh, and fortitude, like um, just like you were working out. And so what types of things can we do to strengthen our, our mental abilities in, in these tough situations? Well, I think, uh, you know, one of the, and I think Neil, I believe, uh, works in this way, or one of his approaches is, is mindfulness. Mindfulness is a very big, is a hot topic in all um, parts of, in business and sports. And so mindfulness is one really helpful way to become present, to be aware of what's happening, to not judge what you're doing. And, um, and so I, I do try to help players move from thought, thinking, analyzing, judging, projecting into the future and help them become more in tune with their body, become more into sensation. And, and so feeling the grip on, on the racket, feeling your feet on the ground, being able to drop more into your body. As, as you learn in yoga, yoga can be very helpful for athletes. Certainly many athletes talk about meditation and there's all different types of, of meditations. And uh, so the uh, experience of be becoming more present, be, you know, coming back to the moment and doing that, and often we have to do it over and over, and we can do this off the court. Um, so when you're on the court, it's not so foreign or you're not just doing it when you're in trouble, but that you train yourself to come back to the present and um, and, and again, being more in sensation than thought and, and analyzing, which is what the brain does naturally. We tend to analyze and, and, and um, try to predict what will happen, win or lose. And so it's, it's that training of, of refocusing, which is often even more important than, than you know, focusing. We all need to focus, but we all also lose our focus, but not getting too disturbed when our mind you know, goes to the finish line. And we can practice that, uh, you know, throughout the day and through. So, of course, deep breathing can help. And uh, but again, being present in your body is a really great way to train this. That's fantastic stuff, Jeff. Really appreciate that. And so when we're on the court playing, <clears throat> I mean, you just mentioned breathing as well. But what other perhaps maybe routines that we can integrate or 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 habits or things to do before and after points, would you specifically advise our audience to do that would be helpful? Um, well, you know, the way I look at it is that you have, technically we have 25 seconds between points. And if what I do is I try to help replace people's software with 12 seconds of, of things that they can focus on. If, if you can focus your mind uh, on on productive things for about 12 seconds, you're you're going to be in a position to play the next point. And it's that time, of course, as you're mentioning, that um, our mind can wander. Uh, we get distracted, particularly with the score, and and so coming back to um, the you know feeling your feet on the ground between points, as I mentioned, this being in your body and centering your mind, using a deep breath and centering your mind in your core and i take i take players through very specific routine in that regard and um and before the return before the serve there's things they can do um 
in terms of their focus, narrowing their focus. So the, the key point with the routines, and I do feel like it needs to be somewhat customized. Um, so I don't want to just give a, a blank, you know, do this. Um, but moving on from the last point, um, and, and my friend Jim Lear um, helped, you know, teach people the idea of transferring the racket to the non-dominant hand, and that can be helpful for many. Some people don't want to be too structured, but um, so it, again, it's very personal, but um, you really want to be focusing on the right thing. So before returning, for example, you don't want to be um, thinking about strategy or questioning what you're going to do with the ball when the server is up to the line tossing it up. You really need to be focused on the ball at that point. Mm -hmm. You need to have done your, you know, whether it's centering your mind, um, picturing where you want to hit the ball, maybe a cue where there's a number of things that are available for you based on your personality, based on your ten tendencies. So, um, but you do need to be able to shift your focus from a very broad focus to a narrow focus before the point. And that goes through a, a very specific process based on your, again, your focusing strengths uh, and weaknesses in that regard, which is what I assess, of course, when I meet with players. That's great stuff, Jeff. And so moving on to kind of off the court or maybe immediate reactions after a match, um, how do you advise um, players to react um, when they've had a series of losses? Because obviously this can turn into, you know, maybe a make or break point at some, at some point, I guess. So what would you tell them to, how would you tell them to think or uh, take next steps when they are, are going through like a, a losing streak that's tough for them? So I think, well, you know, the way I look at a lot of this stuff is, is, is an opportunity. So if you're having trouble, you're losing matches to, to, you have to get good at look, finding and seeing the themes that are going on. You know, are you, are you playing too tentatively? Are you too scared to make mistakes and really not committing to your shots? Are you going onto the court with too many, too many things you want to do? Are you focused too much on winning and losing? Which is, of course, uh, the big elephant in the room for most people. That's what, you know, the brain likes to anticipate the future and it doesn't like uncertainty. So um, it's really t identifying what is it that's happening for you? Are you, are you thinking too much about technique, tactic, doubting your shots? Um, do you, do you have, um, you know, not really a clear sense of tactic. So, so assessing your game is really important. So a slump, you really don't want to think of it as a slump or, or, or obviously thinking negatively about yourself and you really need to get productive mentally. And what is it? And take a look at what is working and what's not. And, and I think be more aware of, of how tight are you when you're hitting the ball? Very important. Are you, you know, I, I talk about looseness and a loose style. How, um, how, how's your focus? I mean, are you, are you focused on other people? The, again, the winning and losing and, and how's your intensity? I have three dials that I teach focus, loose and intensity. So I help players really identify where they need to shift their state, how they feel so they can start to, you know, choose specific, uh, goals and strategies to, to start to, um, play the way they often can in practice. So again, awareness is critical and looking more uh, at the details so they can start to work on the specific things. Often it is, it happens to be mental for sure.
Great stuff, Jeff. And you've also, uh, as we mentioned earlier, written a fantastic book, uh, you know, has tons of five-star reviews on Amazon called The Best Tennis of Your Life, 50 Mental Strategies for Fearless Performance. And um, if you were to pick one of these strategies that you think has really impacted players uh, the most or, you know, one of the most, what, what would you, uh, you know, what would you, you pick? Which one would you pick? Mm. It's a, it's a good one. I mean, well, I, I think that um, the one that that players, athletes often um, appreciate the most, whether it was the Fearless Tennis audio or the book, the, um, the, the idea, I think we can all get so swept away in wanting to do well, wanting to win, not lose, protecting our, protecting our ego, et cetera. And when we come back to gratitude and appreciating what we're doing, um, you know, I, I recently just played a 40 national and yeah, I'm 50 and I, I ended up winning it two weeks ago. And, yes. and well, thank you. And I, but I, you know, the thing that was um, so powerful again for me was just appreciating being there. I love being down in La Jolla and, and so forth. But I think as we, whether it's, you know, age and getting older, but even many of the juniors I work with, the idea of having fun and, and, and enjoying what they're doing and coming back to mastery and in working on these specific goals over and above whether the ball's in or out by an inch, whether over and above whether they win that game or not, but that, that players go on the court with these specific goals and, and having the context be really enjoying com- competition, really being grateful for running and hitting a ball and being able to choose where they hit the ball and and hitting it basically on their terms. And I think gratitude and appreciation can really help players execute what they want to do and not get swept away in ego and, and fear of um, the consequences. And so I'd say the gratitude aspect is certainly a very big part of what I help players tap into and then getting very um, very committed to to their goals and sticking to them as best they can uh, to fight back against this hugely result oriented culture and mind that we have. So great stuff from Jeff Greenwald. And among his many points in that clip, I enjoy a couple of things he mentioned at the end, especially which is gratitude. And I, as I mentioned, you know, I end up playing my best when I'm just grateful for. You know, even being able physically and mentally to play the sport, there's something about the positivity that just radiates and overtakes any sort of nervousness or negative uh, negativity or uh, any other uh, concerns, and uh, you just kind of play free with that. And so I find that to be an excellent mindset to have when you're playing the game. Also, uh, just enjoying the process as well. Another you know, strategy, if you will, that helps you um, take away uh, feelings of um, anxiety or any extraneous uh, circumstances or distractions. And uh, especially, you know, in matches, if you're focusing on the process, i.e. the strategy, i.e. your strengths, implementing those as much as possible to against your opponent's weaknesses. Uh, these are process-oriented thinking and if you're focusing on executing um, that strategy 
and 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 not thinking about the actual end result of winning which can just freeze you up so many times that's when you will be succeeding um, the most so uh, great stuff from jeff there this next clip is from some fellow named mirban who yes that's me actually Mirban Aranchad, and uh, I'm going to talk to you about a couple different habits of winning tennis players. And so I recently published an episode, uh, episode 120, uh, which you can check out at tennisfiles.com slash 120. And it's on the 21 habits of winning tennis players. And there are a few of these habits that have to do with the mental game, because I cover the whole spectrum for the most part, I believe. You know, of course, on fitness, a mental game, strategy, technical advice on that episode, um, habits related to them. Um, But here I'm going to speak to you about three, uh, I believe it's three specific habits related to um, just your mental game, um, goals or how to reach them, uh, and and the importance of choosing uh, long-term gains. Uh, and also knowing your whys. So uh, here is not an interview, but here is me talking about a few different mental game related habits that you need to integrate into your processes and systems if you have not already. So I hope you enjoy it. Number 15, you've got to commit to your goals. This is, I mean, one of the most important habits on the list. You know, when things become difficult or if you're presented with an easier choice versus a harder choice, more work involved, most people choose the easy road. This is something that I have struggled with a lot. And uh, actually, if you go to my Instagram page, it's at uh, tennis underscore files. You know, it's it's something where uh, naturally we just want to uh, choose the easier road. But um, what you need to do is... Remember at that point where you have to put in the work in order to achieve your goals. And, uh, and I mean, it's simple as that. You know, just remember what you're setting out to achieve and remember that if you do not take the difficult road and commit to what you need to do, then you're not going to reach your goal. And I mean, ultimately, when you look back on your life, um, that's what's going to hurt a lot. It's not you're not going to remember. Oh, I, I had a great time sitting on the couch watching this TV show. You're more likely to remember. Oh man, I I set out to have a big serve, but because I made all these easy choices, then uh, I never was able to have a big serve. So, commit to your goal. And I mean, this is pretty much. I listed this as number sixteen, but it might as well be fifteen a. Uh, it's choose long-term gains over short-term pleasure and this is self-discipline and again it's something that's that's really tough i mean humans are engineered to seek the easy safer path i think it's it's something out of just uh you know making sure that you have a higher chance of i guess living and uh not you know not getting in danger but uh, it can really mess you up I mean, the problem here is that you cannot improve without friction and hardship, right? Like if you're just sitting inside in, uh, you know, 70 whatever degree uh, weather uh, in your house and you're watching TV, like what are you improving, right? Are you improving anything? No, you're just staying comfortable uh, while other people are working hard and and, uh, getting better. 
So uh, this this is something that I've, has really resonated with me recently after I uh, listened to a man by the name of David Goggins, who he basically was abused and uh, beaten during his childhood. And uh, at, at one point, he was 300 pounds uh, spraying for cockroaches at Ecolab. And uh, he ended up uh, just one day deciding that he is going to become somebody. And he became a Navy SEAL by, you know, he lost uh, uh, over 100 pounds in three months. And uh, he's done several uh, races over 100 miles. And, and he's become one of the most prolific people uh, out there today and uh, one of the baddest men on the planet and so I've been listening to him a lot and I uh, actually just got his book and I'm reading it and uh, his really his main message is that you have to master your mind by repeatedly choosing to do tough tasks which will make you then used to choosing and overcoming uh, difficult things in your life and it's it's you know it's interesting for me like I you know as I mentioned uh, David's message resonated with me a lot and so I started small by uh, you know choosing the stairs instead of the elevator and you know when, when it was cold outside I actually chose to walk outside um, to get to my other buildings because the FDA is a huge campus and so I uh, I took you know I walked outside even though it was like 30 degrees or whatever and then from there, you know, like normally during the morning, I, in the winter, I, I never ran outside because I thought, oh, you know, it's too cold. But um, these days I've been running outside in the morning, early in the morning. And I just said, you know what, I'm going to choose the hard road and it's going to toughen me up. And it has toughened me up. And now I notice now that when I have uh, decisions between an easy and a hard decision, I guess, choice, then I choose the hard one. And I'm just, you know, I'm getting more confident and I'm, it's really giving me more pleasure in the, you know, versus the short term pleasure. It's, it's giving me a lot of satisfaction and confidence to know that, hey, you know, I'm tackling these difficult things. You know, I used to be somebody who, you know, when there was discomfort, I would just tell myself, oh, you just need to rest. Like, it's fine. But now I'm just going, going for more, going for more, exercising more working harder on on uh on my tasks uh for tennis files and other things and at work uh it's it's really important here to choose long-term gains over short-term pleasure and uh and just choose to to work on uh difficult things and know that you will not improve if you take the easier route but you will improve and you will shatter limitations in your mind if you keep doing things that you previously thought were difficult and you're able to accomplish them. And that's just going to just set off a chain of uh, fantastic things for you. All right. Habit number 17. You need to know your why. Uh, this is what David Goggins called, I believe, called uh, reaching into the cookie jar, I think. But it, basically what it is is when you're trying to achieve something, uh, especially when you hit a roadblock, you have to remember, you know, why you are striving for that goal. And to add to that too, remembering kind of your your struggles as well uh, to get to where you are, uh, that's also a really uh, good strategy. But I mean, you know, for example, remembering your why, while you're training, you might get tired and you might feel like mentally drained to some degree. But you know, you have to think to yourself, I'm training as hard as I can and I'm going to put in this extra set of work because I want to play my best. 
so that I can help my team make it to sectionals so that I won't let myself and my team down. And that way I can realize my full potential at regionals, you know, something like that. It's, you know, just remember, or for example, like when you're, when you're training, if you have that, that goal of uh, reaching the top 10, you know, you keep thinking to yourself, Hey, I mean, I know that people are putting in the work constantly and if I don't put in these extra reps, then somebody else will and they're going to surpass me. So this is why I'm putting it in to make sure I reach my full potential. And so by knowing your why, why you're doing something, I mean, the more whys you have, and just I highly encourage you to write them down somewhere, perhaps in a journal. By knowing your whys, you're, you're going to have a lot more energy to push past difficult times and roadblocks when you feel like you want to give up. I mean... For example, you know, not to like pat myself on the back too much or anything, but you know, a lot of people, they, they wonder how I'm able to have, you know, a normal nine to five job and host a weekly podcast, run a summit and have like other social media, write articles and whatnot, and still have time to play tennis and hang out with my family and friends. And, um, you know, I mean, it's countless times I have felt like quitting the podcast or I have, I have not felt like recording a podcast. I mean, for a little bit, I I didn't feel like recording this podcast, right? It takes work. But then I remember my why, which in this case, I'm really committed to helping tennis players improve their games. And I really want to deliver on the content that I promised, you know, I promised that I'm going to put out these podcasts every Wednesday. And I promised that I'm going to do what I can to help people improve their games, right? So That's keeping me committed to uh, put out more content for you all. All right. This next clip is from Michael Russell, who is known by many as the grittiest player in history. Uh, I believe he was uh, given that title by John McEnroe. And uh, he also achieved a career high of 60 in the world on the ATP Tour in singles. He played on tour for 17 years. He now has an academy based in Houston, which you can check out at michaelrusselltennis.com for the details. Uh, And he has coached some amazing players as well and trained players such as Francis Tiafo, Ryan Harrison, Sam Querrey, Taylor Fritz, and Mackenzie McDonald through USCA Player Development as well as his own uh, private academy. And as for John McEnroe, he said that no one's going to try harder on a tennis court than Michael Russell. And obviously, and as you've probably learned by now in this podcast and perhaps in other, uh, through other sources, the mental game and being strong in the mind is, you know, one of the biggest factors on, on why somebody like Michael Russell uh, accomplished uh, so much in their career, in his career. So um, this one uh, is available. The full interview is at tennisfiles.com slash 121. Um, but for now, here is a clip uh, with Michael Russell uh, on from the podcast on the mental game. Please enjoy. I was playing Kalamazoo, which is the boys' 16s and 18s nationals. And I was in 16s. And I was playing Mike Bryan, who's one of my one of my best friends on tour, and we had a really long match, and I was just exhausted. And I it wasn't even I just felt like a big reason for me losing the match, not to take credit away from him beating me, but 
was the fitness aspect and knowing that my fitness let me down. I was so disappointed in myself that I didn't want to have another match be, have a result because I wasn't fit enough. So literally after losing that match, the next day I made the commitment and created goals to get much fitter and not ever lose a match again because of fitness. Got you, Michael. You know, the thing with that is sometimes, I think a lot of times people will have something like that happen to them and then they'll make the commitment and make the goal. But then when they feel some pain or things get tough with the training, then they'll relapse and then, you know, go go through the, you know, the failures again. So I was wondering, you know, how does that actually translate? Like, what are you thinking, you know, when you're in that training session, maybe, you know, maybe the third one of the week or whatever, and then you're actually feeling it, you know, what are you telling yourself to keep going? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I'm a little bit obsessive compulsive to begin with. So in certain things, that's, that's a positive and obviously it can be a negative, but as far as in the fitness category, it's a positive. So every time I felt there was a challenge, you know, I continue to remind myself why I was doing it. You know, why am I getting fitter? Why am I going through this suffering or this you know, pain, not pain in the sense where I'm getting injured, but, you know, that physical pain when you're working out and it's tough because I don't want to have that sensation of being disappointed because there was something that I had 100% complete control over and I wasn't prepared and I failed at that. So I was I was okay with failing if I was going to lose a match, but I was not okay losing a match because of it. Right, right. Love that. Uh, appreciate that advice. And um, uh, so, one thing that I found, you know, in doing research, uh, is that you're uh, you're a pretty smart guy. So I was wondering, um, you know, you, you were ranked number one in the country uh, in the 16s and 18s, yet you were also the valedictorian of your class. So I was curious how you were able to actually manage balancing school, you know, in your studies with uh, with high level tennis. Yeah, I mean, I was fortunate that my parents were. They instilled in me early that school was always the most important because, you know, you can always get injured and if you aspire to be a professional tennis player and it doesn't work out, you need to have a degree. You need to have, you know, really focus on your studies to make an impact in the world. So I always, you know, took that to heart. And I'm, I'm a person that likes to challenge themselves. It kind of goes back to the fitness and being disappointed. You know, I didn't want to go to the classroom and feel like I didn't study, I didn't prepare for something and give it 50%. I wanted to give it 100%. So by doing that, I'm always trying to learn. And I did that even at a young age. I like reading a lot and trying to learn new things, you know, new areas that I was passionate about. So, you know, time management is a big part of it. So I didn't really spend kind of the pre-social media era. So I didn't, you know, I didn't have no social media back then. And I didn't spend a lot of time watching TV. And if I did, it was only on the weekends or, you know, Nintendo and Sega. You know, if I played video games, it was only a couple hours and only on, like, Saturday or Sunday. So I was always trying to make it, whether it's in school, whether it's on a tennis court, whether, you know, hanging out with friends um, and family. Just, you know, I didn't want to have that label of being kind of lazy and not doing anything with my life. Gotcha, Michael. And so you mentioned that you learned a lot of these values uh, from your parents. I mean, what did they actually do to instill them in you? Did they like just tell you or did they provide examples or, cause I'm just curious about how they're able to, you know, actually successfully ingrain, you know, such great habits uh, and values into you. Yeah. 
a lot of it was just uh, table discussions. Uh, we always sat down at dinner, all four of us, which was nice. So we could, you know, talk mm-hmm. about things, what happened in the world and what happened at school that day. Uh, my mother was a teacher and we actually, my brother and I went to the same school that my mother taught at, which was mm-hmm. great. So that made it uh, pretty easy just to facilitate talks and also anytime we needed a little bit of help with schoolwork, you know, my father would help, my mother would help. And then um, my brother was an excellent student as well. So that was a nice example. Since he's three years older, I could always see how well he was doing in school. And I kind of, you know, I didn't want to be also that, that other, the second child that doesn't do well in school. Meanwhile, my older brother is doing really well. So I didn't want to be labeled that. Nice. I love the competitiveness there. And it was very helpful to have a successful brother as well. Uh, just curious, you know, sometimes high school tennis can, uh, especially for a great player like you, not be really fun or anything. I was curious, did you actually play uh, high school tennis? I did, and actually, as a freshman, I played number two behind my brother. He oh played, wow! Yeah, he played wow. one. Okay. So we were actually in a nice. in a smaller division. We were the private school, so we in Michigan. It was uh, considered class C. Class A was the biggest. So my high school matches, yeah, I mean, I, it wasn't very competitive, but it was fun. You know, I looked at it as a kind of social uh, escapade as I, you know, we traveled to tournaments and it was fun being with the team. You know, my brother was there. And then when I wasn't playing the high school matches then my training was pretty intense, it was almost like a little break from my everyday, you know, full on training. Nice. Nice. And I, I don't know, for some reason I felt a lot of times like when I played, uh, you know, nowhere near your level, but when I played high school tennis, I felt like sometimes it would kind of bring my level down, but I don't know if that was just an issue with, with my intensity. So how are you able to make sure that your level didn't get affected too much, you know, when you, you know, actually played much lower competition? No, it can definitely bring you down. I mean, you can even relate that to professional tennis. You know, a lot of times, you know, you can play to the level of the opponent and you can't do that. Mm-hmm. You know, you really have to, you know, have the self-talks and get motivated, get the feet going, and make sure that you continue to go, you know, whether your game style is more aggressive or you're more of a defender, you you can't sink to the level of your opponent. So when I was playing high school tennis, if I saw the opponent was really weak, I would, you know, I would work on my serve and volley, you know, work on certain aspects of my game that I might not usually do if I'm playing a stronger opponent. Great stuff from former top professional tennis player Michael Russell. And one thing that I love that he said, and which I actually mentioned in one of my uh, top winning habits in the uh, the previous clip, is to remind yourself about your why. And this is so helpful, as Michael mentioned, you know, when you're going through a tough training or you're deciding whether to go through a training or, you know, skip out and take the easy road, which is never a good thing. Uh, or if you face adversity or a losing streak, for example, ask yourself, why am I doing this? What is my purpose for, you know, still, still taking the high road and trying my best, even though it's uncomfortable. And when you remind yourself about your why, which you need to have, uh, at least one very powerful why, for example, it's going to, uh, really fulfill me to be able to say that I maximized my tennis potential or that I was able to reach a certain rating that has been my goal. 
um, for the past couple years or whatnot. Uh, just remind yourself of these whys. You know, why are you going to put yourself through um, the pain and discomfort? And that is usually pretty much always enough to push us through if our whys are important enough. So um, that's a great technique, a great strategy to use there, asking yourself your why or whys. Very wise. A little wordplay there for you. <laughs> All right. Uh, I have one more excellent clip for you, and this is actually from the most recent episode. So you can just go one back on your playlist, or you can go to tennisfiles.com slash 123123. Uh, and this one is a clip from Fazal Syed. And Fazal achieved a lot, actually, in a relatively short uh, career on the Pro Tour, achieving a hot, uh, top 400 singles and top 200 doubles, I believe, uh, single uh, rankings on the Tour. And he now runs a, an academy uh, called Level 7 Tennis and is giving back to the community. But he had some excellent points and uh, takeaways for you all on the mental game as well. So let me run that clip for you. Uh, without further ado, here is uh, part of my interview with Fazal Syed. I started tennis with uh, Akhtar Ali, who was the Indian Davis Cup coach. My dad was a national soccer coach, and they were friends. So I remember going to see his son, Zishan Ali, who was a top world-ranked junior, who was actually as high as world number two junior. And so as a kid, we used to go watch him play and then we just like stick around and get a, get to hit a few balls uh, afterwards and you know we were sort of hooked by seeing uh, somebody of that high caliber in front of us and so that's what i remember first about my tennis and I, I guess my first match which i lost to a girl and i cried for a good two days ah <laughs> uh, yeah that's always tough but uh, i mean actually on that point um you know what brought you back i mean there's a lot of people who when they experience hardship in something especially something new then they quit it so what brought you back uh you know it was just the first tournament i don't think uh, i was even serious enough to be leaving it i mean uh, we were i started playing at 10 which is relatively late uh but then i never really got better until i was like 13 14 so you know i was it's just a part of learning process and i would say i think at an early age i was fairly tenacious i you know I was not the kind of person who quits when they first lose. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, that's it's one of the most important traits of all to become a pro like you uh, became, obviously. And so you mentioned that you didn't actually, I guess, become a highly ranked player until 13 and 14. So what what made the difference in the those three to four years? Um, you know, I mean, I really, to become somewhat decent, it took me, I would say, a good eight years. Because in 18, I became number one in India, even at 13 and 14, I remember first just getting to the national level after four years. Mm. And I remember losing my first round nationals at 6 0, 6 0, and the guy mocking me at the <laughs> match who later on become my friend. But, you know, in a few years' time, I ended up becoming number one in India, sort of like uh, overpassed a lot of the people who are way ahead of me. You know, I think I was just, you know, I, fortunate in the sense that. Uh, I had my father as a, a mentor who was himself a very accomplished athlete and a coach. And I had Akhtar Ali, who was like a father figure to me. Um, and then, you know, I was uh, 
Akhtar, like you know, in India, as you know, everybody's an uncle, right? <laughs> so I still call him Akhtar Uncle, and uh, he always told me my greatest talent was my work ethic. Mm. You know, I was just uh, relentless, and a lot of people had told me I was never going to be that good, and uh, I just had it in me to prove a point that uh, you know I was going to be more than that. Yeah, that's fantastic. And I mean, yeah, maybe to expound upon that point a little bit. So, I mean, you had like the the one player who turned friend mocking you and other people, you know, maybe thinking that you couldn't make it. So how did you use that energy to become a, a, such a great player and the best in India? Uh, you know what? I don't know. I don't know what it was. I think uh, it's just people that have it. Uh, you know, I, I remember as a kid in school we used to have these uh, extempore speeches and um, so one of the topics was uh, a winner never quits and a quitter never wins and it kind of like stuck mm. with me that's been my motto in life in general and it's just like um, I always had I actually my when I think about it I watched um, my when I was just first started playing tennis and I, I was we had the tie in our club in South Club which is called the Wimbledon of the East uh, where all the great players like Rod Laver and Roy Emerson and Tony Roche and all these great Australians came through. And so we, we used to hold the Davis Cup tie. And uh, for the first Davis Cup match that I remember, I was in third grade and uh, third or fourth grade. And we had uh, India was playing Italy. And I remember taking the Friday off, like convincing my dad that I needed to go watch the match. And just being in the Davis Cup environment where the whole, uh, you know, the stadium's cheering your name, people are going nuts. And I was like, I want to be like this. Yeah. I want to play for my country. And it was like my childhood dream mm. that I'm going to play Davis Cup for India. And, uh, you know, I, I, I want to be like these guys. And uh, so that was my, I had sort of like made that my dream. And in the meantime, I mean, I was been I've started, I was not even in the state mm -hmm. level, and people were telling me I was not that good. And I tell my son this, uh, you know, because I remember I was one of those guys who was just relentless. I would after practice, I would go in the back of the club and I'd be jumping rope, doing push-ups, sit-ups, and, and the people, the older kids would say, "Hey, why are you working so hard? You're not gonna be that good. Come back over here. Come sit with us and have a drink." <laughs> Like a, so, uh, like a Coke or whatever it was. And um, I, I remember those days, like people would just be like, what are you working so hard for? You're not going anywhere. And, uh, you know, it, it was just in my heart that I wanted to be, you know, that was my dream to play Davis Cup for India. And uh, I wasn't going to stop till I got to it. Wow. Yeah, I'm sure that took a lot of... A lot of sacrifice. I mean, like when you were a junior, were you skipping like lots of functions and events that normal that kids would normally attend as well to play tennis? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, um, my dad always told me this, and he is like, he's like, the better you get, the more people mm -hmm. want to be your friend. The more you want to be others' friends, like you know, you're wasting your time. Um, so I was, yeah, I, you know, I was that. I did definitely uh, didn't have it was not like a normal childhood where you do all the birthday parties and this and that you know you're going to tournaments you're practicing uh, I had a very tough regime like you know regiment like early morning five o'clock wake up pray stretch workout like you know serve practice or jump rope go to school go to tennis finish tennis do all more practice come home homework go to bed. And that was basically my life till I came to America. And, uh, you know, we never really went past 10 o'clock at night 
most nights we slept mm-hmm. like 8.39 and we never really stayed, uh, stepped in wow. bed past five. And uh, it, it was, uh, it, you know, it was tough and my dad definitely put on a lot of sacrifice and put the hard hours behind me and my brother. And, uh, you know, so I was, uh, in order to accomplish something great, you got to put in a great amount of effort and you got to believe that you're going to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 100%. Uh, Fuzzle, how were you able to build, you know, that sort of uh, 5 a.m., that, that discipline that, that, you know, that you'd wake up every day at the same time and things like Because obviously a lot of people struggle with actually building up like these great habits that help us accomplish great things. So how were you able to build that up? Yeah, you know, I think I'm really fortunate for my father. He was right there. Like, you know, obviously as kids, there are days you wake up. And uh, mm-hmm. I remember early morning we used to get up and pray. And, you know, when we go down to bow down, that would be like a long bow down. <laughs> 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 that would be like a little nap down there. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, he definitely was behind us the whole time. And, like, you know, he helped. Um, you know, he woke us up. He was with us. I mean, he was waking up with me. I really think I... I wouldn't, I definitely know I wouldn't be here without what my dad dad did for me and was, you know, his sacrifices. So I'm very, very thankful for that. 100%. I was wondering if you could give us maybe, maybe like one lesson that you learned from Akhtar and also one lesson that you learned from your dad uh, that you still carry with you uh, today. You know, my dad always told me, uh, you have to have the heart of a champion. And uh, Akhtar uncle was also, you know, he came from not the most privileged background and he came up up the very hard way. And I just saw what a great fighter he was, what a great competitor he was. But I also saw him, uh, you know, he he was somebody who supported on his own a a girl's orphanage, a Muslim girl's orphanage in um, India. I used to get girls married who came from very low, uh, lower income backgrounds, just doing a lot of work. Uh, so just the work ethic and also just remembering that you got to give back and like doing things for your community. And, you know, I think those are the two things that I sort of like take from each of them. That's awesome. Appreciate you sharing those those lessons uh, from people very close to you. And then so obviously you uh, you got to the top of the ranks. I think you mentioned in, when you were on uh, 18 or so. Uh, I was wondering uh, what was it in your game or training or anything like that that got you to the number one uh, player in the world? Or in India, sorry. <laughs> in India, I wish I was number one in the world. Um, no, <laughs> but you know what? You know what's interesting is uh, I remember as a, until I was thirteen, fourteen, fifteen. Like, I think I would attribute a couple things. First of all, I was a. Uh, I think I was. My physical fitness was probably top notch. Uh, I was. I've never lost a match because of fatigue or cramps or injury. So I worked physically very, very hard. So I was probably the fittest player. But at 15, I was 5'1", and that year I grew seven inches. So, uh, and that compounded my serve overnight became bigger. And so my game changed. And I, I, what happened was I remember after Uncle telling me, like, if you want to play professional tennis, I mean, mind you, I'm not even close to national level tennis at this point. And he's like, if you want to play professional tennis, you got to have a big game. You got to go for shots. You can't be like, you know, just pushing the ball in and, Hoping the other guy misses, you got to like take the initiative. You got to be aggressive. You got to, you know, you got to make things happen. You got to, you know. So I, my game, I worked very hard, and it's a lot uh, easier said than done, right? because people get used to playing a game. 
that's their culture, that's their character, like, you know, not making mistakes. And now suddenly you're like, you're okay to take, make, make mistakes. You're going to take some chances. You're going to be more aggressive going after shots. You're going to go for the big serve. You're going to serve in volley. You're going to chip and charge every once in a while. You're going to hit and come in very quickly. So it's a completely different game. And it took me a little bit of getting used to it. But after two years at 17, I really started, I could just see like, you know, I was just like, going like literally speeding past a lot of the juniors who were like winning in juniors but couldn't because i think at 15 16 i started having good success in the men's open tournaments and then uh, 17 18 i really started getting to the top and i started like beating the top men's players as well in india so um yeah i, I, I was fortunate i think you know That's i mean awesome. a lot of people mm-hmm. get advice i was one of those few people who made the most of every advice given to me mm-hmm. like you know i used to i remember after uncle like when he would coach i would go sit on his lesson just listen to what he was teaching other people so i could learn from it so i was sort of a little hungry for learning and really hungry to like improve my game i had a lot of like you know self-motivation i think they compound over time when you do the right thing uh day in day out and year over year, I think you know, the rate of improvement improves. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, for sure, of course. Yeah, compounding gains, right? Um, yeah, no, totally. And I appreciate telling us, uh, you know, just your, your growth, and it's amazing. And yeah, I was wondering. I mean, you, you talk about the self motivation and things like that. So I mean, I guess I started thinking about, you know, there's some kids or whoever who who. Like they have the goal that they want to become this and that, and maybe they're motivated for, you know, a few days or something like that. And, and you know, it is their goal, but they just, when it comes to actually the things that they have to do, they don't end up doing it because of, I don't know if it's laziness or something else. So, I mean, I, I, I'm just trying to think, you know, are there any solutions to that or does it, is it always just intrinsic or can there be some guidance there? I think a lot of it's like, you know, and, uh, you, you like, I think I was fortunate to be surrounded by a father who was himself a very high-level player. And so, you know, he pushed me for sure. I was fortunate to have a coach who, even if he was not every day around me, like, he cared about me. Um, and uh, I think it's important to have the right people around you. Uh, it's very, very important. And, you know... I think it's, I, I'm sure people can, like, as much as my story seems like I did it on my own, a lot of people who know me still think that I did it on my own. Uh, I don't think I did it on my own. I really think I had a lot of people, like, you know, my, my father was a huge part. Akhtaranko was a huge part. Um, I also do think the naysayers play a huge part, you know. Uh, it kind of sounds odd. Like, people like me, when somebody tells me that you cannot do something, it just is the best thing to, for me to hear because it just fires you, you know? So you just remember like, like these people, they will want to see me fail. So I, I got to get out there and keep going because right. I know I can do this. All right. Great stuff from Fazal Syed on the mental game. And I just want to thank, you know, all the guests that were on this episode uh, featured on this episode from previous interviews and obviously thanks to all the guests that have come onto the podcast and given such great advice on all different facets of the game and also to all of you for listening and if you made it this far 
I think you deserve a tennis pun. Or actually, this is going to be just a general pun. So here goes. Why did the tennis player decide to work on his mental game? Answer. Because he wants to get ahead. I I hope you got that. You know, mental head. They say if you have to explain your joke, then it's not that funny. Uh, I explained it just in case you didn't get that joke. So you hopefully got it before that. And so it was, in fact, a good joke, regardless of the explanation. As you can tell, it's been a long <laughs> episode, but I really do hope that you took away some information from this episode, some really helpful information, whether that's in, you know questions to ask yourself or uh, just um, different strategies or uh, approaches to the mental game. And again, I highly encourage you to check out these episodes uh, if you're interested in checking them out, uh, listening to the full episode rather. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, that's pretty much all I've got for you. Hopefully an hour and a half plus is enough for you for one day, unless you broke this (laughs) up into several days. Um, but I would really appreciate it if you would subscribe to the Tennis Files podcast and you can do that by hitting the subscribe button on the podcast app of your choice. Very simple. And that would help. Well, that would actually get you every single episode downloaded straight to your device that you're listening to the podcast from instantaneously as soon as it's published by me, cutting out some of the work for you to find the different episodes and search for them and whatnot. Uh, I also uh, have a quote for you, as I often do at the end of the show, and it's not a pun, but it's a quote. Yes, a quote. This one is by Mother Teresa, and it is... Some people come into your life as blessings. Other people come into your life as lessons. This is a great quote. Uh, It's definitely very applicable for me. And, um, you know, whether they stay for a while or come and go, uh, there's always very good lessons to be learned. And uh, it's important to be grateful for all those experiences that you've had with different people, whether positive or negative or both. Um, But great Great quote there from a a legend in Mother Teresa. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the podcast. I have some great interviews lined up for you. I'm very excited for them. Uh, Some with with, uh, great friends and experts and others with fantastic coaches and athletes. So uh, I hope you'll tune in to the future episodes and I'll definitely be hard at work at tennis files. I've got to substitute something for my tennis playing these next next few weeks. Uh, hopefully, you know, with my shoulder, uh, it'll recover fairly quickly, but we shall see. If you know any good scar cream, uh, email me. Uh, in any case, uh, wishing you all the best as always and thanks a lot for all your support and I wish you a happy holidays as well. And with that, I will see you on the next episode of the Tennis Files Podcast. This is Mirabon signing out. Thanks for listening to the Tennis Files Podcast. For more tips to help you improve your tennis game, visit TennisFiles.com.